I'm Johnny Palmer, and I beat the often path by using business and enterprise to create the world that I want to live in. Johnny Palmer is a tech entrepreneur, the founder and co-founder of many different companies, and he's an activist in the UK who has accomplished an incredible amount in both business and activism. And because you know his last name is Palmer, you know he's the real deal. He built a virtuous cycle with his businesses, and he always served a greater mission, proving that money and resources used well can be the path towards building a better, more sustainable future for all of us. His career is at the intersection of money and meaning, and his North Star is evident in all of his many different and impressive ventures. We'll learn how seemingly different ideas and companies can all be linked by the same guiding principle. So here's Johnny Palmer, I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Be The Often Path. Using business and enterprise to create the world you want to live in, that could be a subtitle for this show. That's exactly what we're all about, and that's why I sought you out. I'm pleased that the Palmer boys are back together again. How do you feel about that? It's great. I, I'm sure we have common ancestors, but I'm not aware of any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who, who knows, right? You're coming by way of Tasmania and now in the UK, right? How long have you been in the UK? Oh, like 25 years. I, I might as well be British, but I really hang on to the Aussie accent. Because in the UK, if you're an Aussie, they kind of have like a sort of fond, sort of like um, pat on the head attitude towards you. And you, you get away with a lot being Australian. So it suits me, but I'm probably more British than Australian now. In truth. Probably, okay. How old were you when you moved? <laughs> uh, like 15 years old. So I've been oh, here the majority okay, of Okay. So you've spent the majority yeah. of your life over there. All right. Yeah. Um, I've got British to address the, the elephant in the room, which is, in this case, a, a private airplane or a full-size airplane. Obviously, you're not recording this from 30,000 feet in the air, but there is a cool story behind this jet. There is. We're about probably, I think, about 18 feet above the, the ground. It's an old <laughs> private jet. It's a Boeing 727, which I bought from an aircraft graveyard up the road in a place called uh, Kemble, which is an airfield. Um, and I saw this thing and thought, what a what an amazing office that'd be. So I went and had a chat with the guy, and he he took he was polite. He he didn't he didn't take me seriously, but he took time, which was nice of him. So I thought I need to I need to make this a serious thing. So I went and got planning permission, which is a thing you get in the UK before you can build things. And then went back with a with a bag of cash, literally, and my planning permission, and said, "Come on, Mark, let's do a deal." And he and he sold me this thing, and it's been like probably one of the biggest catalysts of change in my life, having having this bizarre office space. It's fantastic. I love it. I mean, you definitely win the award for the most unique background on this show so far. <laughs> We're coming up on 180 episodes, and it's just wild. So, so bravo. And it's sitting on some containers, some shipping containers. It's painted lovely artwork on the outside. It's beautiful, right? And, on, and uh, the shipping containers have clouds on them. So it Of course, really because it has it. to be in the sky, right? So it <laughs> right. has to be painted like clouds, right? Well, it's uh, it's fantastic, and it's a great intro to the kind of kind of person you appear to be, um, which is, you know, as I said before we started taping this, you're you're one crazy dude, and I mean that with the most respect in the entire world. You have done some impressive stuff. Uh, you use business and activism. You, you see that they're intertwined, and I do as well, and that's why I sought you out. You have your hand in what appears to be just tons of pies. I don't know how you keep them all afloat. I'd love to get into that. But you have this incredible building space, what's called One Skyline Park, right? You have uh, a Soul Cell. You have a power company. You have all kinds of different companies. You're, you're cleaning up the rivers, and you're all about river uh, water quality. You want to be able to swim in uh, Bristol Harbor. <laughs> you have so many different things going on. How the hell did you get here? Um, they're all interlinked and I'll go back to the core philosophy, right? So really simple with me at the moment in 10 years, I might have something more refined than this, but I like, we're all gonna be dead soon, right? Like 40 years, 50 years Absolutely. gone. Right. Yeah. If so the lucky, question yeah. then is how do you want to spend that time? And it's like, well, what kind of world do you want to live in? 
and what do you want to do in that time? So I want to live in a world where the rivers are clean. I don't want to live in a city where I can swim in my harbour. And I want to have crazy interactions in weird spaces like an aeroplane. Um, and I want to do engineering and build things from scratch and understand the intricacies of what goes into engineering systems. So it's a simple philosophy. I'll be dead soon. How do I want to spend that time? And then doing the things to create the world I want to live in. It's that simple. Well, it's, it's brilliant. And I couldn't agree more. You say yourself, so you started in rural Tasmania on a, on a farm surrounded by animals. Uh, so would you describe yourself as self-made? I know that can be somewhat of a personal question. How did you get involved in business? Did you have a leg up or did you really just start from scratch and end up Not here? really. No, not really. I mean, I'd say in a way there's quite a lot of negativity. I mean, you know, like as a, as a young entrepreneurial person, initially in like DJing and sound systems and events, you know, people are worried because that's all like nightclubs and drugs and things. So we don't want you doing that. That's bad. Right. You should, you know, you need to go to school and get degrees and things. So help, not much. My grandfather lent me 500 pounds though once to buy my first professional sound system. Um, and, I, <laughs> and I paid him back pretty quick. That was the one bit of help I've had. Everything else else has been a bit of a bit of a fight. And there hasn't been, I wouldn't say there's really been any major lucky breaks either. It's been like a slow upward trajectory with lots of ups and downs. There's not been any major event that's like, bang, suddenly it got good. It's It's, it's been hard graft. That's so hilarious that it was, not only we share the last name, I also was a DJ for many years, and I was in the music <laughs> industry. I lived in the Netherlands for nine years. I worked at Armin van Buren's record label, uh, so that was my whole life for a considerable amount of time. But then I also had an awakening. I moved to California in 2015, and I also had an awakening of, okay, what do I want to do? What do I want to commit my time to? And while flying around on private jets, you know, looking at your jet is, is nice. I had, I had the feeling of there has to be something more to our existence than just me partying in the nicest hotels, me taking the greatest Instagram photo and me flying around on 200 private jet flights a year. There had to be something more that I wanted to contribute. That was never going to be enough for me. And I kind of recognized that. And that's sort of why I started on this path. So we, there's a lot of parallels here, which is just, were you, just were wild. you like DJing at the top level or were you just cruising along with um, Van Buren everywhere? Um, no, I mean, I, I, that, those were two separate things. So I was just working. I was an employee of the company, but I was DJing on the weekends. So I DJed every weekend in college for pretty big parties. We threw a lot of parties. And then I moved to the Netherlands, had to start over from zero. And then I worked my way up to getting club gigs. And I created this truly ridiculous duo with a friend of mine where we wore pink and purple cat masks and did just absurd things. And we were touring all over the Netherlands. And eventually we did a tour in, in China as well which was cool. I went multiple trips to China. So I wouldn't say the top level, but, you know, definitely a gigging, working a musician and making, and I had a track on the radio at, in the Netherlands that did all right at one point. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a good life. Well, mate, it was you were very more stressful. serious DJ than me. I was, I was cruising around a bashed up old transit van that was 20 years old and oh, um, nice. to save money on staying in hotel rooms would sleep in the back of this van. So That's I think great. you did better on the DJ than me. <laughs> well, you know, I tried, but I still took a pretty hard detour. So for anybody out there, it's like I, I went pretty far before I realized, oh, I got to come back. And then, of course, I, I mean, I know things are different in Europe, and but I came to the United States and, you know, this will sort of tie it all full circle. And in the Netherlands, you don't need any money to survive. You just don't. It, the amount of money that I needed to live comfortably is, was absurdly low. And I came to the United States literally with two suitcases and two cats and my wife. We, we got rid of all of our possessions. We either donated or sold everything from our Amsterdam apartment. We came all the way over here. And I kind of assumed, having spent my entire adult life in Europe, that being over here would be the same. And I didn't realize that in the U.S. you need conservatively 10 times the amount of money coming in per month to maintain 
the same standard of living that you're used to in the Netherlands. Uh, so I was just blown away by how much money I needed to live, to have a decent apartment, to have health insurance, all of these things that Europeans take for granted. So it quickly became very evident to me that I need to make a lot more money and I need to figure out a vehicle to do this. And that also began me starting my digital agency and taking on different kinds of clients. So this is the progression of me dealing with that, basically. And you know, now here we are some years on, but uh, it's, it's, it's been quite wild. And so that's why the intersection between making money using capital and doing stuff that means something to you is so interesting to me. And maybe I wouldn't have gone down this path if I was still over there and I didn't need to earn as much money just to live. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So a bit of a transition there in terms of yeah. like having to suddenly jump into the world of making some serious bucks to maintain a decent yep. life, right? Yep. Yeah. And then you read books like entrepreneurship. I started from the ground up. It's okay. How do you make money, right? And then you read Think and Grow Rich. I just started, you know, checking out books, audiobooks. Uh, I was an English major, so I had read a lot of fiction books in my life prior, but I had never really read nonfiction books. And that journey began in 2015. Started reading tons of books, reading autobiographies, starting to you know get lessons from people that I admired, and just you work your way up that business book chain. You work your way up and explore those types of ideas. And then that leads to the concept of entrepreneurship. Or for me, it's like, okay, if I want to do this, starting a business is probably the right way. And that's how I ended oh, up. Oh, that's interesting. Here. So you were driven by like the need to adopt entrepreneurship as a mindset and skill set rather than it being as intrinsic to what you are, perhaps. Yeah, I would say so. It was quite the opposite. I, I don't think I began in an entrepreneurial way whatsoever. In fact, um, I think being, you know, a hippie at heart and going to a liberal arts college, I threw lots of parties. I could have charged lots of money, but I threw them all for free. I, I just wanted people to be yeah. around me. So I did tons of stuff for free. Uh, I never really liked the idea of dealing with money for many years of my life. And that's why I didn't make much of it for many years of my life. It just wasn't important to me. And then suddenly it had to become really important to me. And then I thought, okay, I know nothing about this, but I certainly didn't go to school for it. I certainly didn't, I wasn't raised that it's important. My parents didn't ever talk about it. So it's a journey that I had to go on by myself and that has, you know, yielded uh, good results, but it's been a long road for me as well. Right. Interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about yourself. So what was the first business that you started? Uh, can I swear? Yeah, absolutely. Fine. Horse shit. It was horse shit. Um, I was on a farm <laughs> nice. with a horses and the horse was, would shit a lot. And my job was to pick it up. And I realized I could sell this, this horse shit uh, for about, I think it was $5 a bag, which was not bad in like, I don't know, the early 90s. Um, yeah, selling that. Then walnuts, they were falling from the tree. I could sell them for a dollar a pound, even though Australia is a metric system. The old scales we had were in pounds, mm -hmm. um, old British system. Um, and then I just got obsessed with sound, audio. I love audio sound systems, just old hi-fis. I built all sorts of weird rigs trying to get one amplifier to amplify the signal from another amplifier, which if you're an audio guy, you know, that just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. There's only so much current you can put through right, a transistor. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, and then, yeah, love of audio, love sound, and then DJing off the back of that and more more, more audio. And then... Um, yeah, started. Came to the UK, which I perceived to be like the mecca of dance music. Bear in mind, Same. this is like 98. So post-rave yeah. scene, uh, like the UK is where it's at. House music I love. Um, yep. And then started DJing, which was getting the gigs I could get, which back then was um, a real spectrum. You know, things from like midweek student nights where I do a lot of party games. At the weekend, I seem to crack it in kind of the high society 
18th, 21st and wedding crowds and then doing more and more corporate stuff in central London, which then showed me this whole other world, which was alien to me of like this beautiful life that people lead in central London, beautiful hotels and amazing food and just different people I hadn't met. And doing that, you know, probably about 150 gigs a year, like just opened my mind to this other universe that then became like my, my habitat. Okay. So you learned yeah. about the power of investment and maybe you learned about the power of what you can do with capital. Well, yeah, initially, honestly, it was probably because I grew up really, really poor on that farm in Tasmania. And there were times when I think there wasn't food or much food because of money. And that made me realize from a very young age, money matters. Um, really important. This matters. I also was privileged to go to a really good private school in Australia, funded by my grandparents back in Britain. Um, so I was the poor kid amongst the rich kids and realized the kind of social worth and status that comes with, no, not comes with money, by not having it, how you can find yourself not part of the conversation. That sounds really bad, but I, but I sort of learned that on a it's sort of truth. subconscious level and realized that money kind of matters. Sorry to the people who think it doesn't, but it kind of does, actually. Mm. And especially when you want to enact the kind of change that you're after, it's so important. And you know, we can talk about, you have this incredible facility that you've just bought, one Skyline Park, and there's a video tour that you've shown. Maybe we'll put up clips of this as we air it on the YouTube side. But what you've done is you've built a space that's truly remarkable. Not only is it uh, powered by battery technology and, and solar powered, but it's also carbon negative, I think, right? It's at the very least carbon neutral. Um, it's an incredibly functional space. It has a studio, it has a climbing wall, all of these types of things. So you're you're saying, you know, I'm able to build things that are better than the things that have been built before with this money allocation. And that seems to be, to me, a really cool premise. Well, you need, you need resources to get stuff done. So if I want to yeah. create a world which is like, screw you oil companies, uh, I don't want to be vulnerable to your energy costs, and I want to make a point of what a workplace can look like, I, to do that, I need money is one thing, but I also need engineering skills. I need to understand the legal framework around building regulations so I can act that vision that I want to enact in the world. Um, and money's a, a critical part and money makes all the other bits a whole lot easier. So yeah, I think it matters if you want to facilitate major change. I look at my activism world, right? Most activists in the UK, amazing, wonderful, driven, focused people, but a lot of them just don't have the resources behind them to enact change. But if they did, they could do so much more. So I realized the value of creating capital to creating the world that you want is, is, is absolutely critical. Mm. So what was your first foray then into the green space or the eco space or into activism? Uh, well, sadly, a lot of the things I've done have come from a place of frustration, anger, which I know is a really negative emotional set, but um, diesel generators. So producing big live events, major stuff. And there's always these damn diesel generators sitting there chugging out smoke. And I remember one show where we had two 500 kVA gen sets. That's a, that's a big generator, really big. Synced up. We'd done a beautiful, amazing production. Weeks of work had gone into it. And these damn generators fail. And then the whole show goes to pot. We no. look bad. It wasn't our generators. Oh, no. And I'm like, okay so i'm like okay diesel generators let me get this straight we're digging stuff out of the ground and burning it it's creating all this carbon which blocks up pipes and exhausts and stuff and then if you don't put enough water and oil in there's a hundred things that can go wrong and i'm like this sucks i don't like these things at all and they're noisy and you know what that really pissed me off they drown out my sound system sometimes um there's got to be a better way nope. Right. They're often noisy, right? Some of these things. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, what can we do with solar and batteries? So me and my colleague Alex uh, managed to get our hands on a bunch of old UPS batteries and um, some charge controllers and inverters and built our first little battery-powered mobile sound system. And 
people are like, this is, this is not going to work. And then we use it and it's like, this is awesome. You know, it's silent. It leaves the gig with more power than it came to the gig with. Uh, it, it never went wrong because this is marine technology. This is like tough as guts. It's designed to be on a ship in the sea. And then we, we scaled up from there and made bigger and bigger systems. And then our new facility, One Skyline Park, is now on a, on a massive three-phase version of exactly the same kit. So we're solar and, and batteries and virtually never use, use the grid, which is cool. I love that. That's amazing. I didn't so know that that transitioned like connected, into right? that. Yeah, I didn't know that that yeah, was the impetus sense. for that. Yeah. That's crazy. Okay. So you just realized this. Uh, so I'm curious about the part about it left the gig with more power than it came. So mm. how is that possible? What, what's going on there? So I'll start with an analogy. Imagine you've got a diesel generator with half yeah. a tank of diesel, yeah? And you left the gig after using the power with more fuel than you came with, right? Right. Nuts. That's what a solar battery system can do. We can leave a gig with more power because we're generating on site from these photons firing through the air from the sun, capturing that, using some of it, and the rest goes into the battery. It's almost like magic, but it's not. This is technology that's been around for decades. So the solar energy coming in, I mean, because that's the the problem that a lot of this tech has, which I just find interesting. Like there's a new car that's coming out that has a solar panel on the roof. And yes, if you leave it in the sun for several days, you'll get, <laughs> let's say, 50% charge. Clearly, it's a step in the right direction versus yeah. being stranded somewhere. But yeah. it's far from the place where you're going to drive and your car is going to have a greater charge than when you left the garage. Yeah. So how amazing are these solar panels or how low is the power draw that's for these big shows that that's possible? Well, it depends how technical you want to get. So if you're running a sound system, that all people talk about, like it's a 20 kilowatt dance music sound system, maybe, but sound is a very transient power draw, right? So a big bass note might suck a lot of juice, but then most of the time sound, I've learned from having really analyzed it, is actually a very low nominal amount of power. So sound systems off battery rigs are fantastic. Um, so mm. I've done gigs. I mean, I, I produced a show when Greta Thunberg delivered uh, her speech in Bristol for 30,000 people. Um, we ran this big sound system, line array stacks, delays, infills, like serious concert sound system for about 10 hours. And it, I was shocked at how little power it actually used. Most of the power was actually heat loss through the transformers in the, in the, in the processing equipment, not the actual sound engine itself. That's insane. Yeah, if if you're a nerd, it is, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, right. The audience here is. I love this stuff, though. <laughs> right. Well, that that that's oh, so. Greta Thunberg, obviously one of the biggest names in the eco movement, climate activist yeah. herself. So, have you found? You mentioned you know different types of people in central London scene. Have you found that you're you've been getting more and more plugged in? Have a different kind of people been surrounding you since you engaged in these types of initiatives? Because that would suggest to me that somewhere somebody along the line said, "Hey." This guy is the kind of guy that we want. This is the tech that we want for when Greta Thunberg does her speech. So have you been surrounding yourself by virtue of doing what you're doing with a different caliber? Yeah, different it's really organic. So the thing with activism, by its nature, it tends to be disruptive, which means it's a new sector, right? So there's new communities and there's new hierarchies emerging the whole time. Now that means, like any new industry, um, meritocracy wins, right? If you're good, you're involved. If you're not good, you're not involved. It's as simple as that. So I love activism for that reason. So when you're the guy that or girl that rocks up with whatever, art, sound system, uh, a stage, whatever, like, yeah, that person's good. Get them back again next time. So it's a very iterative, very meritocracy-based world. Um, so yeah, I, I donate some stuff and become the guy that does the power. And I'm always honored and delighted to support this stuff. And I love being involved in it. Um, so yeah, you just get a sort of name for yourself just just by turning up and hopefully being decent at what you do, which which I love. I love a meritocracy. I love a meritocracy. Yeah. 
And you have a production company as well. So you also yeah, you recognize the importance of media and part of One Skyline Park is that you have space for content capture. You have space you've, that was something that you consciously thought about when you built it. So what is the production company side and how did you end up on that train of thought? Well, so, you know, going as as you know from your journey, I think, from, you know, DJing to well in my case, audio to DJing, you're you're what you're doing there is you're using technology and art to create experiences, right? That's the fundamental underlying thing you're doing, right? So if you love that, you're then going to start using lighting to create experiences. You're then going to start producing content to communicate messages, and it all becomes the same thing. So it naturally ends in a space where you're where you're doing large scale event production and content. So Pitch is a, a multidisciplinary production company: sound, light, video, rigging, staging, fabrication, um, welding, power, all of it now. But then, when COVID hit, um, that real world experience couldn't happen. So we we're like, right. this could be really bad. And I mean, we had a really healthy forward order book. The company was in in good shape. Bang! Overnight, gone. Yeah. So we were like, okay, how can we use engineering and art to create experiences and share messages? And we're like, well, broadcast, right? I mean, you know, not in person, just over the internet. So we sort of uh, got all those resources, warehouses, millions of pounds of kit, a really good workforce, and repositioned it to become overnight a broadcast company doing online virtual events. Um, and now, post-COVID, the company sort of re-emerged and restructured, both still doing broadcast, but also doing live events in a more, in a more hybrid way. So just the capability has expanded across more and more things. But the underlying philosophy of engineering and art to create experiences and deliver messages fundamentally is actually exactly the same. Mm. I love that. I love the idea that things that seem separate are actually connected, especially to the outside world where somebody might say, how is all of that related? I think that's a common, but you've done a great job of articulating how they can be connected. Because sometimes people look at my arc, and obviously I got here for a reason, but they don't know, it's like, what does DJing have to do with this? Or why are these things, they appear very separate. And we live in a world where your social media presence, people say like, what am I coming to your channel for? What is the one thing that I'm going to get from your channel? Like, I talk about battery technology or whatever, right? Um, but I think if you have a broader perspective, it's easier to see connections between things that seem maybe different at the outset. Well, I challenge uh, that. The person who says they're into battery technology, are you really? Or actually really into the way the world might look with different energy sources? Just maybe. Right. Who knows? And from my experience, people who are really purpose-driven, there's usually something a bit deeper going on. Or they love electronics or whatever. So I think it's important to get away from that initial sort of headline label and find out what's really going on below the surface. Because to me, that's where the interesting stuff is. I com completely agree. So how many companies are you in charge of now? <laughs> how many companies um, do you have in total? So we're a group structure and we have Pitch, which is the AV production events broadcast company thing. Look it up, pitch for the Y, .co.uk. Um, right behind your shoulder. <laughs> and then yeah. we've got, yeah, there's um, Lunar Domes, which is an accommodation business. Me and my, my co-founder and one of my best friends, Dan, set up, which is a geodesic dome accommodation down in, down in Kent with a new site opening in Norfolk soon and hopefully one in Bristol next year, fingers crossed. Mm -hmm. And then um, Intelligo, which is a software company, a streaming platform, me and some co-founders built during COVID. It still trades. Obviously, it's less relevant now than it was during COVID, but it's, it's still a good SaaS platform. It still trades and makes money, albeit on a much smaller scale. And then Renewables, which is SoulCell, um, which we've done some fantastic work, but we're still working hard to get our certification so we can do installations, which uh, banks and insurers will accept on other people's buildings. And then my activism, which is my, 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 my river activism. And there's property. Property is where most of my equity and income comes from, which is commercial property. And um, sometimes very passive, sometimes um, a real um, uh, pain in the butt sometimes when roofs aren't doing too well. Ah, I see. <laughs> I see. <Yeah. laughs> 
This podcast is brought to you by my agency, Aloa, that's A-L-O-A, a digital marketing agency that helps brands and nonprofits on a mission to improve the world tell their story. We do website prototyping, design, UI, UX, SEO, CRO, 3D design, video editing, commercial creation, 2D animation, industrial design, content management, learning management systems, and our roots are in e-commerce, managing and building extensive catalogs with hundreds or even thousands of products. In short, we do everything brands and nonprofits need to grow their digital presence with simple, transparent, monthly prices that you can just build a package that's super easy and figure out exactly what you need to grow. Learn more at aloa.agency. That's A-L-O-A dot agency. And now back to the show. Uh, how the hell do you find time for all of this? What does your typical um, day look like? That's the part uh, that I said you're crazy because I, I just, it's so much, it seems like. Well, today I spent two hours with a local police and crime commissioner talking about the state of our region, how things are going. Then I had a chat with some of the guys at work. I looked at some construction stuff we're up to. Then I'm with you, spent an hour with the team doing some podcast setting up. But look, you know, Pitch is run by an amazing CEO, Joe Sanford Hughes. Um, the Domes business, um, Dan operates that, my, my co-founder. Uh, property is relatively passive. It's very intense when a deal's happening and then it's like, bang, nothing. Um, and Soul Cell, Alex, who's head of engineering, he's just chewing through what he has to do to get the certification we need. So it just, you know, things do their thing. And if I have more capacity, I, I can do more, some more stuff. And if I'm a bit maxed out, I, I dial down the, the, the non-time critical things like, like activism, which, you know, can be picked up and put down again. Mm -hmm. How many people do you have working for you at the moment, do you think? Rough estimate. In, across the whole group, probably only about fifty. It's not massive, you know. Okay. We do, we do big things, but it's not a not a huge company. I, th I think the way we're perceived and the scale of what we do is is perceived to be a lot, probably a lot bigger than it really is. Mm. Yeah. Well, one Skyland Park is a huge building. I mean, that's it, it's certainly very impressive. It's cool. And yeah, that's all. And you bought so it and you gutted that, it, right? It, it, it existed, yeah. and you bought it, and you said, and asbestos in the ceiling kind of thing, and you, you dismantled it and made it into. A green well, building. Well, it didn't exist. What happened was we had a whole okay. bunch of other warehouses with funny street numbers and names, and I bought this next warehouse next to it, which totaled eight, and then the street names were all wrong. So my colleague Jordan Tompkins, he then said that we can't get post because it's all weird. Can we have our own street, please? <laughs> And our local council, British, Bristol City Council, turns out they have a department that all they do is name streets, right? Now, right. no building work's happening around here. So these two guys just sit in a back room and I guess just wait for a phone call. <laughs> so when Jordan comes and knocking saying, hey, we need a new street, these guys are super excited. We get They're to like, name yes. a street. This is our job. <laughs> nice. um, okay. So we come with Skyline Park because it, it forms part of the skyline of Bristol because Bristol's in a big valley. Um, and they're like, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, and then one Skyline Park is, is the really, really best building on the property, which we completely tore apart and pretty much rebuilt. In hindsight, probably should have bulldozed it. We didn't. We kept the steel work. That's another story. But it's a, a spectacular, beautiful building. Really, really proud of it. That's amazing. So if activism is the side project or the thing that you can scale back if need, how has doing the business side helped you do more on the activism front? Uh, transferable skills. Uh, I'd say more goes the other way. Activism helps business. So when you're doing activism, you're purpose driven. So there's this like sense of, for want of a better word, righteousness. I know I'm doing something that is good here. Okay. That increases your resilience to people who might not be so keen, which is often the case with any meaningful activist. You're not going to have all fans. They don't, not everyone likes it. 
And then you're like, oh, okay, so I can like rattle some cages and get a really good outcome. And by the end of the story, everyone's actually pretty happy. I can translate that to business. And it gives you confidence and resilience in business, which is makes you kind of not exactly unstoppable. It makes you much more powerful and capable to do bigger things. The other way around, business is obviously, you know, communication, it's organizations, it's leadership, it's process, it's administration. They're obviously fundamental skills in getting anything done. So so there's a massive cross-pollination of skills between activism and business, definitely. That's fascinating and so great. What are some of the lessons that you've learned in building businesses and growing and scaling? What are some of the things that you know now that you didn't know back in in the old days before all this started? I don't want to sound critical or negative, but people aren't as smart as you think they are. You know, I grew up thinking everyone was so smart and they had integrity and they had their shit together. Uh, I've subsequently learned that most of them, most of us, we don't. Yeah. We're yeah. all just monkeys bumbling around in the forest doing our best. Right. Um, so yes. ne- to never be intimidated by someone who seems to be an expert and also be wary of experts because no one's an expert. We've all got stuff to learn. So um, just don't be intimidated by people who seem seem like they've got it together because they probably don't or they do in some areas but not others. So, you know, you can do it. Uh, yeah, everything's possible and don't be scared off by things. Here's another one. Everything's easy when you know what you're doing. That's a big one. Okay. Nothing is hard. Nothing is hard when you know what you're doing. All right, we got to go into that a little bit. What does it mean to know what you're doing? How do you get to a place where you know what you're doing if you didn't know, especially when it comes to something? Because a lot of this at the outset, you know, I think of the average person who's listening to this, a lot of what you're doing, I can imagine, seems borderline impossible. It's like, okay, sure, this freak guy managed to do all this stuff, but it seems like there's a huge gap between, hey, I don't like my job and having massive complexes and doing all of this investment. So how do we bridge uh, that gap? Well, first thing I think any individual, one of those people needs to think about like, what's important to you? What what world do you want to live in? Like we talked on earlier, what what matters to you and, and choose a theme. So um, probably the most thing I'm best known for is this aeroplane, for example. How am I going to get that aeroplane to be as an office in Bristol? That's massively overwhelming, right? Like what is there even to know, let alone knowing it? Identify what those blockages are get educated you know what what are the what are the factors to consider here where are the risks um where might it get in trouble like meaningful trouble that actually matters um and then reach out to people that know and slowly one by one you whack down those little things that are in the way until eventually like okay this could happen this could be a thing someone's got to do it might as well be me does that answer the question it it, it does and i'm wondering what are the kind of things that you know now or you know being capable what do you feel most capable of now problem solving organization what do you feel you really got for tackling some of these larger problems now well i i don't know i suppose another way another question I, I, the way i perceive that question is um what am i actually good at not sure but i think getting things done probably my my skill is um seeing through complexity and simplifying things to making it a procedural plan um, in terms of uh, details and patience, I'm not your guy. In terms of breaking down structures and seeing how something can be possible, that's probably my one and probably only skill I really have. Do you consider yourself a type A, very organized, structured, spreadsheet kind of person or more type B, um, ideas and big picture and let somebody else handle the spreadsheets? 
I think that I think the, the human condition's fluid. We can adjust, you know. Like if I'm doing, for example, a financial model, I'm very much like linear and mathematical. But if I'm dealing with a you know tricky emotional situation with one of my children, I, I think it's more fluid and more more empathetic. And I, I think that we're all kind of quite fluid in, in our ability to go between those, you know. Uh, so I wouldn't categorize myself as either. I mean, being one but not the other sounds sounds pretty dysfunctional to me. Okay, so you're <laughs> able to go back and forth. That's, that's I try. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. try. Yeah. So try, at this point, know. now that you have the capabilities and you have a team, and you, you probably the concept of what you think is possible in terms of the kind of change that you can make has has grown. I'm sure substantially since probably even a decade ago. What are some of the biggest problems that you see in the world right now, and how do you feel that you can best contribute to those problems? Let's say in the next five or ten years. Yeah, it might be a confirmation bias, but a lot of the issues I see in the world seem to come back to one underlying theme that I'm aware of, which is um, young men in particular not having good male role models. I see that as a really serious issue. Violence towards women, crime, economic unproductivity. Um, I see a lot of that rooted in lack of positive male role models. Um, and that's something I really want to ramp up, how much of my time and energy goes into trying to, re to resolve that. Ooh, if young men had area. good male yeah. role models in their lives, I think a lot of the problems in the world would diminish significantly. That's such a, a relevant thing. You know, we've never talked about that on this show before, but it's so relevant, especially when you look at the kind of role models. Now, social media allows you to follow anybody. I'm sure you're familiar with you know, Andrew Tate and a lot of these other people who've been in the news, right? Negative role models that are causing a lot of chaos. In a time where people can choose to follow mm -hmm. whomever they wish, mm -hmm. why is it that so many people are choosing young men choosing to follow bad, harmful, toxic, weird, alpha male bullshit, if I may say so, mm -hmm. uh, role models versus other people. Why do you think that that happens? Why are they gravitating towards this? And what could we do to stop that? Well, I think the first thing is like bad. Well, clearly these kids don't think they're bad. So the question is, That's true. the real forget that. Why are they following them? And I, I think we have a series of vacuums. You know, young men who often don't have positive, strong role models that represent the values they know within them, a gravitated, someone like an Andrew Tate character might fill that vacuum. Now, a lot of what those people say will be endearing and engaging, but sadly, and he's an excellent example, a percent of what he says is seriously messed up. I mean, bad, bad stuff. But if you listen to some of these people, um, a lot of what they say really resonates and there might be some truth in it. So it's not as simple as good and bad. I think that there's vacuums around us that we need to fill with stuff that is on balance, um, okay, and doesn't have extreme things like misogyny or what appears to be the promotion of violence towards women, you know? Right. But let's look at Andrew Tate. I think many people would say this on a podcast, but he does talk about health, personal responsibility, strength. He's anti-drugs, anti-alcohol. Sounds like a good guy, right? No, because he's also a misogynistic possible rapist. Who knows, right? So... The first bit um, is actually quite good, I would say, but there, mm. there's a bit that slips in there, which is really, really sinister. And to take this to another level, you could apply a similar analogy to Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. You could. A lot of um, what he did was like, okay, was take away that, the last... Right. Yeah. There was a reason that he was you, followed, obviously. There was a reason that people believed This is him. the thing. So right. let's break that down. What was going on there to make people follow yeah. these people? Andrew Tate, Hitler, I know they're very different people. But like, sure. break that down a little bit, and then maybe we could look at what is our um, responsibility to not let those people have control of our young people in our societies, and then do some really, really horrific things. 
I think you're right that it's clear that young men feel very alienated. That's true. They're very alienated right now. They feel very lost. Uh, they feel uh, they're not quite sure what their place is in society, what their role is in society. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is just, you know, what are the tactics? It boils down to tactics. Like, what, what do I need to do to be successful? Who do I need to be to be successful? What kind of person wins this game that I don't appear to be winning and yep. then they look to these role models that they think, oh, it's it's this system of tactics. I have to treat women this way to win that mm-hmm. game, which, of course, is, is, in my opinion, horribly misguided. But the reason is it's just trying to boil down the nuance of human interaction into an, an us versus them. Like, men must behave this way towards women. Mm-hmm. We must do these things to be respected by women. And, of course, the reality is just talk to them like they're human beings. Just be a human being well, and communicating kind of with another we, human being, right? Yeah, that's the kind it. of mentoring that's that we That's the tactic. Need. Absolutely. We need that kind of thing. And, you know, people like Andrew Tate, the I'm way they teach women. them how to make money is all these online scams and things. Like, we right. need more positive male role models. And, and, I, and I think that's happening in the world. And that's something I would, I would like to work on a lot and offer whatever I can, the good yeah. bits of me, um, yeah. you know, good in the broad sense to offer that to young people as much as I can. And I think that's the, probably something that's going to ramp up a lot in my lifetime, yeah. I hope. I hope to create really good, positive young men who create a goodness in the world um, for everyone. Well, I think you're well poised to do it. You're very well spoken. You have a great accent. You sound like a radio presenter right away. I know you've been thinking about Mate, doing that's something the microphone. in the podcast. That's the RE20. Yeah, yeah um. it's not the RE20. The <laughs> RE20 is a great microphone, but it's not that good. No, you've got the the goods. Obviously, you have the package and the mental skills and all of that needed to do it. I have no doubt that you'll accomplish that goal. I, I mean, to, I know that you, you know, you're know you very political in your answer, and I appreciate that because I also like the nuance, and there's no such thing as good and bad, and there's no black and white. I can appreciate all of that. But why do you think it is that we have this culture? Because if I look at the space that I'm in. I like the eco space, the activism space. And if you look at social media, and this is just something I just thought of, those types of spaces, these types of issues, they're primarily dominated by women and they're followed by women. If if you look at eco brands, just brands that are selling products that are eco-oriented, like Grove.co or various uh, online retail experiences, they're almost all tailored at women. They're almost all supported by women. And if you look on Instagram, all of those things are supported uh, by women and have that kind of women... uh, feminine branding, whereas the male space on social media seems to be largely dominated by cars and money and private jets and all this, and, and fighting like, oh, it's fight night, MMA, let's beat each other up kind of thing. <laughs> and it just doesn't, I don't see a whole lot of people, of, of male leaders in that space. It, like, why do you think there appears to be that, that difference in what people gravitate towards in the social media world we live in? Well, I think that people like double or triple down on their on their confirmation biases. The spaces that I live in, in groups and so on, is one of like men are responsible, they're caring, they're loving. We talk about our, our partners and our children a lot. Um, we're strong mm. and we, 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 we try to be kind in the space circles I mix in. So I think it's down to the circles we mix in. But like you say, you can go off on one. If you want to be into, you know, aggressive, violent, abusive stuff, there's a club for that on the internet. Um, so I think we need to be more uh, intentful with the kind of stuff we want to be engaged with. There's a group up the road from here called the Icebreakers. These are the most wonderful example of what masculinity can be moving forward, right? They're kind, loving. They, the conversations are about mental health support. That's about how to be better partners. It's the most wholesome, beautiful example of masculinity I've seen. And and that inspires me. Um um, a guy called Tim Bowles, running each of them as a host. He's as a guest, sorry, he's fantastic. Um, cool. And 
Uh, so there is really, really good stuff out there. And it, it, it saddens me that um, young men in particular, because that's something I kind of understand, or God, God forbid my children would be in those spaces where it's just nasty and violent and hostile. It saddens me. I completely agree. And clearly I'm attempting to do the same kind of thing in my own life. Because to me, all of that stuff, it's, it's just, it just rings so hollow. And that's what I'm trying to do and build a life of meaning and also to be that voice. I've been married to the same woman for 11 years now. I also have a daughter. And I, of course, I'm very conscious of the type of person that I am and also the type of people that I talk to because I want her, she, she won't recognize it now, but one day she's going to grow up and I want her to look back on my track record and say, okay, that was he was always championing the right cause. And that's why I'm so keen. I show so many women and women leaders and uh, different types of people on the show because I just want to remind her and other people that you don't have to, you don't have to be that way. But she'll also use you as a benchmark of this is what a man is. Um, and, I, and I guess with you, a kind, loving, caring, purpose-driven person who has well, see, time that's where you're her. wrong. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, the, see, looks can be deceiving. The, the real truth is horrific. No, but thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. We can we can we can all fight yeah. our battles, and we can influence what we influence. Yeah. And I and I do my best to try and try and resolve that because I do see that the the male identity is being something. It really is like under th not threats the wrong word. It's it's at risk of being steered in the direction of the kind of characters you've mentioned. Right, and I think yeah. we just have to be. We have to. I don't want to say destigmatize because that word is so loaded, but we do have to kind of change the conversation to make it okay. And I don't, I don't fully know how to do this, but to make it okay for men to talk about these kinds of things and to be more vulnerable when they're bombarded with messages that, that you, you can't be, or you shouldn't be. But you we know, can do a lot, you know, like yeah. I can talk openly about these groups who I think are amazing and beautiful. Sure. Um, you know, it's been a years and years since I've seen it, but like, if I see like pornographic um, objectification content on walls of workplaces, that shit gets ripped down straight away visibly. Mm -hmm. And I make a scene about it. And hopefully there's a level of authority that comes with my position. That means that, okay, they, other people might take cues. They're tiny little bits of day-to-day -day activism. Or if a friend, uh, when, you're out maybe makes a remark that might be in some way diminishing um the identity of others like just be like not cool you know it's not cool right. and i know i don't know maybe britain's further ahead than some countries i don't know but i think we're getting pr in my demographic getting pretty good at that actually and i, and I really hope the, the the women and other people in my community um don't feel a threat or diminished or objectified in any way i hope fingers crossed yeah, I, th I think you're right. And I do think that Europe is far ahead in that regard um, and that a lot of these things are a lot more normalized. Like the government, there's a lot more, it's just taken for granted that the government and the people should be moving towards more eco-friendly solutions. I think in Europe, there's mm -hmm. there's not so much of a battle that we need to do this. There's like, okay, we know we need to have electric cars. We know we need to put windmills up. We know we need alternative energy sources. We know we need a uh, forward thinking things on gender like being in sweden blew my mind they don't have gendered bathrooms they don't have genders on yeah. application forms so, so mate the swedes regard, and the danish they're just like us but better i was in denmark a while ago amazing. and they're just like superior human beings out there like, <laughs> right they're just a hundred years in the <laughs> future amazing, like none you know? of these issues they just don't they solve them all and, and the it's dutch glorious. man you're out in holland i love yes, the dutch they're I, so I know cool. and i miss they're them all the time and they're if it funny wasn't and they're kind of beautiful yes. and they sort of Float yep. somehow around everywhere, you know. They're just amazing That's, people. My like, wife is Dutch. So yes, she is. <laughs> I'll have to show her <laughs> yeah, this. Amazing. Yeah, I love. And the I, complete, I completely agree. And of course, like if it wasn't for the rain, I would have stayed there my whole life. The only reason and I the left flooding. Was and yeah, right. Well, the sea, the sea does not want Holland to exist. The sea no. is like we are. You are no. gone. Um, That's yeah. right. 
the, yeah. the dike are the only thing that they're the only thing holding it together. But yeah, I completely agree. And in this country, it's like everything's a battle 50 50. I mean, everybody knows the demographics and politics of this country. Nothing is taken for granted. It is just a uh, two large forces at loggerheads. And half of the people want this kind of progress, and half of the people do not want it. And they violently do not want it. And that can be a very challenging space. So I perhaps think your experience I'm a bit in the US colored. is different from what we see in, 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 the, in Europe, I think. I mean, I, I, we, I think mm. we get a sense a little bit of what this mm. vibe is in the States, but it seems very yeah. different to, to Europe. Mm. Yeah, very. It, it, it is. It is. And there's pros and cons. It's not all bad. I mean, the, the adventurous spirit and the spirit that you can make something of yourself, the spirit that you, that anything can happen and the entrepreneurial spirit, that's so strong here. And that's a really wonderful part of the United States. But the fact that progress is such a battle, I mean, that it, it, it wears on you. And it's it's difficult from time to time just hearing, like you said, oh, if you hear something, say something. Well, I mean, there's lots of parts of my day where in my day-to-day life, I hear things like that or hear people talking about stuff. I mean, people who love a, a, a certain individual that we all know whose name has been in the news way too much for the last several years, uh, they, you know, it's, it's 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 all around you, unfortunately, a lot of the time. Really? And yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. It's not, we are not all in agreement on what a better future looks like. I mean, the, the very concept of making America great again implies that it was great in the past. And for many people, that was not the case. So what are you going back to, right? What what is what was so great and who is it great for? That's the issue. So, anyways, now we've just scared off half the people with the political, but they they already know American the politics. politics. And stuff. Yeah, I you know, think but Ross it, might be a Democrat, maybe. No, 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 God, no, <laughs> no, of course, <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. 170 <laughs> episodes in, you might have gotten that idea. Uh, but you know, it's 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 just I think what you're doing is fantastic, and like I said, you're clearly poised to do much bigger and better things. There's no doubt in my mind about it. Um, I knew it was going to be interesting to meet you, and I'm, I'm glad we were able to do this. Uh, do you have any sort of you know parting words of wisdom or any uh, bits of advice, things that you're musing on right now? I love the idea of being a role model. Working on that, carry on with my um, water activism. Uh, clean waterways yeah. is a big, big thing in England right now. Um, and just trying to consolidate the businesses, be a good dad, be a good husband, be a good mm-hmm. friend look after health. Um, and I've got more projects on the go, um, which are cool, bring together more and more disciplines to, together in one in, in, in singular things. So parting wisdom, I don't know, not really. I mean, uh, what would I say? I mean, what are your audience like? What, what could I offer to your audience? What, what kind of people are we talking to here? Well, I think the biggest thing is just how do you turn the life that you have into the life that you want? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I think people get wrapped up in stuff that doesn't matter too much. I think people, a lot of people are hindered by a, a lack of productivity. I think a lot of people just bumble around and waste a lot of time and don't realize how much time they've got in the day. It's awesome. Um, and I think a lot, a lot of people who I sort of, and I, and I get people reach out to me on social media and I, and I try to always like have a call, like where are you at? And the, the thing I consistently hear is that they don't, they want to do big things in their life, but they don't really know what they're about or what matters to them. If they did, it would be very easy to have a path forward. So I, my advice would be figure out what you're actually into and what you are as a person and then try and, you know, make your life look more like that, if that's helpful. Yeah. You know, well, in my case, yeah. I want I want clean I want clean rivers because I love rivers. I think they're beautiful, beautiful analogies for so many philosophical and natural things, and I think they should be clean. So, okay, go with that, Johnny. So what resources have I got that I can make rivers clean? And I use those resources to try and make change 
enjoy the process um, and hopefully some change will come, which in my case it has, which is great. And I'm grateful for that. So that would be my, 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 my wisdom if there is any in that. <laughs> That's fabulous wisdom. Is the biggest problem, I, I just got to ask since we didn't touch on it, the biggest problem with the rivers, just that companies are just mm. dumping pollutants into it. What is the issue with the rivers that you're trying to solve? Okay, so in, in the UK, we have um, a sewage network, which is um, connected to the rain um, storm overflows. And when it rains, we get raw sewage flowing in our rivers, which is clearly not okay. The reason that happened is because a few decades ago, our government basically sold off the water companies to private to private companies. Um, and as a result, the private companies, companies like Macquarie, the bank from Australia, um, who have acted like absolute scum in the UK, in my opinion, have bought them, loaded them up with debt, paid out massive dividends, and now walked away from bankrupt organization that let sewage flow into rivers. And people like me are not okay with this situation. So we're doing everything we can to try and stop this because we don't think there should be raw sewage in the rivers that we swim in. Yep. <laughs> Novel thought, right? Novel you thought. Take do, you, after do, you, you know, or, do you want or, shit in our rivers? You know? No. <laughs> in a place like no. Stockholm, going back to it, you can take a glass from any of the water in Stockholm and you can drink it. That's the craziest part. The Swedes... They're crazy, and, and the Danish. I went out to Denmark to make a documentary about their waterways, um, and their waterways are just beautiful, spectacular. They're, you know, the people feel they own them, they use them. It's where people meet up. It's just beautiful, and I just want Britain to be more like like Denmark, or, or like you say, probably Sweden too. Yeah. Just don't ask what's in the Dutch waterways because you don't want to know. It's fifty percent bikes, thirty <laughs> percent beer. <laughs> 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 A lot of other stuff that's not good. Well, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure, Johnny. You were, you're really awesome. Um, I'm a fan. I'll continue to support what you're doing. Keep it up. You're doing great. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. Um, I hope Thank you for having your time me. here. And uh, with that, uh, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Off and Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>